Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Today, in addition to our extraordinary guest, We'll be joined by our executive producer, David Yaz, of Pod 617, our production company. As you'll soon learn, he has a special interest in today's discussion. Now, our guest today is a lawyer, a mother of three boys, and an internationally renowned autism advocate. She has changed the world for the better, and while she would not ask for it, countless people owe her a debt of gratitude. She began her career as an attorney with the United States Department of Justice, and then as a full-time law professor. But following her son's diagnosis with autism, her life was changed. She began volunteering for autism causes, eventually writing, lobbying for, and securing the passage of groundbreaking autism insurance legislation for South Carolina, now known as Ryan's Law, named for her son and serving as a catalyst for a national movement toward autism insurance reform. She served for a decade as the national head of state government affairs for the international nonprofit Autism Speaks, and is also the founder of the annual Autism Law Summit. She is co-author of the law school textbook, Autism and the Law. In 2010, she founded the Autism Academy of South Carolina, a nonprofit ABA center now known as the Unum Center for Neurodevelopment. For her local, national, and international advocacy efforts, our guest has been recognized with the NASCAR Foundation's Betty Jane France Humanitarian Award, the Miss South Carolina Pageant Woman of Achievement Award, the Jefferson Award for Public Service, the Professional Women in Advocacy Excellence in a State Campaign Award, and the Civitan International World Citizenship Award. In 2019, she became CEO of the Council of Autism Service Providers, an association of organizations serving people with autism. Her work has been profiled on CNN, on NPR's Morning Edition, and in Town & Country Magazine, from which she received one of three 2009 Women Who Make a Difference Awards. She is also profiled in the American Academy of Pediatrics 2013 book, Autism Spectrum Disorders, What Every Parent Needs to Know. Please welcome the extraordinary Lori Unum. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Michael. So great to have you on the show, and we have so much to talk about. Lori, I I often begin the show by asking our guests to speak about themselves on a personal basis beyond the extraordinary challenges and accomplishments that I usually summarize in their introduction. I wonder if I should even ask you that question. Is it all just tied together for you? Do you think of your work, your your passions, your personal life? Is it all just just blended together? It it really is, Michael, more so than than most people, I think. My work and my professional life, my personal life are completely blended. I kind of live, eat, breathe, sleep, autism 24-7. 
that's by choice, though, of course. I, I, as you said in the introduction, I had another career in the law, which I loved very much and could have stuck with that. But I really felt called to bring my legal skills to make some changes in the autism world. So let's talk just a little bit before those, those days. Before your son, Ryan, was diagnosed, you and your husband, whose name is Dan, were living in Washington, D.C., working as lawyers for the Department of Justice, as I mentioned. Do you remember back then, like, what were you thinking your life was going to be like? What were your plans for the future? Certainly nothing like what life turned out like. I can say that for sure. I loved being a, a baby lawyer in Washington, D.C. I thought it was a tremendous honor to work for the U.S. Department of Justice. I loved the work I did there. I did mostly appellate work. So I got to travel all over the country and engage in intellectual exchange with, with a panel of really smart judges. And I just loved that work and, and really thought it was a tremendous honor um, to be in that position. I then went into teaching, which I also loved. And honestly, I, I taught at George Washington University Law School initially. That was my first faculty appointment was full-time professor there and really thought I would probably ride out my career teaching mm. because I loved so much the interaction with the students. I felt like I was doing something positive every day. I, I'm a pretty good explainer. That's one of my gifts is being able to explain things well to a variety of people and different learning styles. And so I really thought I had found my niche there. And it was while I was teaching at George Washington University Law School that my firstborn was diagnosed with autism. And that just um, sent me down a completely different career path. Yeah. Before we get to that, and we're, we're going to get there, there, there now, I just have to ask you a, a question that just arises from curiosity as a fellow lawyer myself. What was your subject when you were a professor at GW? Initially, I taught legal writing. I was the dreaded first year legal writing. Teacher. I remember it well. Yes. Oh, well, we all do, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone hates their first year legal writing class. And I always say to my students, no, this is the most important class. So important. The ability to, to learn how to analyze the law regardless of the subject matter and write about it in a clear fashion. That, that's what will carry you through as a lawyer. But it's hard to convince those, those uh, 21, 22-year-olds that it's important. But I directed the legal writing program at GW. And then I taught at another law school, a startup law school in my home state of South Carolina called the Charleston School of Law. And there I also taught legal writing, but I, I picked up federal courts as one of my courses as well. Another old favorite. All right. So then it all changed. So, Lori, why don't we start by, by you telling us what happened with Ryan? You, you, you talked about him being diagnosed. Just give us the whole story. How old was he? Tell us, tell us about the whole experience. Sure. Well, so as I said, Ryan was our firstborn child. And so I didn't know a whole lot about the developmental milestones. I, I mean, I knew what I read. But it came as a bit of a surprise to me, I guess, at his 18-month-old well-child checkup when the doctor said, He's, I don't, he should have more words by now. He should be babbling more. He, she, could, she did a screening, the pediatrician did a screening, and, and could see that he wasn't developing quite right. And so she referred us to developmental pediatricians who specialize in the diagnosis of autism. One of the most awful things is that there's a very long waiting list to get in to see a developmental pediatrician or a psychologist who specializes in autism diagnosis. So we waited for months on pens and needles. It's, it's just an awful time. And, and I'm sorry to say that that wait still exists for many people all across the country. So we waited a long time, but we did get in to see the specialist. And by the time he was 22 months old, he had a diagnosis of autism. He did not speak. With autism, some children never develop language. Some children develop language just fine, and they have deficits in other areas. And some children develop language and then lose it. Regressive autism. 
my son was one who essentially never developed language. He had just a few words or word approximations. So looking- Never including today? Well, he is still considered nonverbal. Okay. But he does have some words that he says, but he's not conversational even up through today. But looking back, I remember the pediatrician asking me at 18 months of age, did he babble? And I said, yeah, he babbles. Then after I had my second and my third child who babbled, children who babbled for real, I remember my first son was not babbling. He was making some noises. And as an inexperienced parent, I thought, well, yeah, that's that's babbling. <laughs> but now looking back, I realized it wasn't. So I think it's especially hard when it's your firstborn who is diagnosed with autism because you feel a lot of guilt of, oh my gosh, should I have detected this sooner? Should I have recognized a lack of uh, meeting those milestones sooner? But all in all, I mean, we were very fortunate, I think, to get the diagnosis before he even turned two so that we could begin intervention early because the earlier you intervene, the better the outcomes for, for these children. Yeah, yeah. Dave, you've had some experience with with autism. Just to just to just set the stage for your participation in this conversation, would you mind sharing that a bit? Sure. My experience was not too dissimilar from Lori's. Our our son Adrian was born in 1999, and so he was also tough to figure out kind of early on and. What Lori said is maybe the most heartbreaking part of the experience of being a, a parent of a child with autism is you can get the diagnosis. We got Adrian's very early, 18 months. He was diagnosed with PDD-NOS, which is something they tell you when I think they don't want to tell you that they have autism. But <laughs> these days, they probably would just say it's part of the autism spectrum. So he, he appeared to drift away from us. He stopped making uh, eye contact. We knew he was a smart kid because he knew all his letters before all the other kids. He would sit and perseverate on these plastic refrigerator letters and name them all. We thought he was a genius. But then we could tell he wasn't developing at a, a normal rate. And so he began obsessing with on like Sesame Street and Elmo, and he would repeat things that Elmo said. But we could tell he wasn't progressing. And so that sets the stage for what becomes a real painful road for really years because autism is still so mysterious. Other forms of, of things like Down syndrome and Fragile X, it's so easy to identify and diagnose right away. With autism, they say if you've met one kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism because they all develop differently. And as late as five, six, even 10 years old, we're being told, well, he may progress. He may now... Adrian never made that big leap forward, but through, I know Lori's going to talk about ABA, Applied Behavioral uh, Analysis, and that that method has made it able for him to do things that we'd never thought he could. Things, simple things like getting his hair cut. So, yeah. so I'm happy to um, compare notes with Lori all day long, but yeah. it's 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 amazing that it's still such a mysterious thing, and yet the the last two decades or so, as Adrian has grown up has been really great in terms of autism awareness. And now people at least know, um, a lot of people that before know how to do it. I My theory is in, in part, it started with the movie Rain Man, which is actually an excellent representation of a person with autism. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned ABA and, and Lori, maybe that's a good segue for you to talk about ABA, how you learned about it, what it is, sure. your experience with it. Sure. So I, I didn't say this part. We actually had Ryan triple diagnosed because, as I mentioned, there was a long waiting list. And so I got on the waiting list at several different centers or, or doctor's offices, and they all kind of came up around the same time. So he got diagnoses from Georgetown, from Johns Hopkins, from Children's National Medical Center. I don't know why I kept keeping the appointments. I thought maybe I was hoping the next one would say, oh, no, this is not autism. This is something else. Take this pill. But no, that never happened. They all agreed that he had autism. But looking back, it's really fortunate because we also had unanimity from these three very fine medical institutions 
that the best course of action was ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis Intervention, which I had no idea what that was. I barely knew what autism was. I mean, you mentioned Rain Man. That was my, that was the sum total of my familiarity with autism at the time. So I barely knew what autism was. I had never heard of applied behavior analysis. I'm a little bit skeptical by nature. So I'm kind of like, what is this therapy they want me to get, this intervention? But I decided, look, if the doctors at Hopkins and Georgetown and Children's all say this is what to do and they're not acting in concert with each other, then I'm going to do it. So we first just tried to figure out what it was. And there was some internet, I guess there was Google at that time. This was really before Facebook. So there were no groups you could go into to, to learn about it. But I, I learned about the science of behavior analysis and it inherently made sense to me. I'm an analytical person and, and behavior analysis is basically the science of studying how people behave or animals. It's, it's in animals as well, but studying how people behave and, and deriving the principles of why someone behaves the way they do. Okay. So there are principles, right? People tend to respond better to positive reinforcement than negative reinforcement. That's a principle of human behavior. Mm -hmm. So scientists for many decades have just have studied human behavior and derived these principles. Well, then applied behavior analysis is utilizing those principles that we know are what, what governs human behavior, utilizing those principles in a very deliberate way to elicit certain responses, to, to change or shape a behavior, to eliminate a behavior if it's a negative behavior. So that all made sense to me. So my husband and I agreed, we're going to do this. We were fortunate that we lived in Washington, D.C. because there were ABA providers in the area that we could find, we could reach out to, and, and that's what we did. We invited them into our home. Most ABA 20 years ago was home-based. There were very few centers where you could take a child for ABA. So instead, the therapist would come into your home. So we had this team of ABA professionals come over to explain what it would be like. And so they walked us through kind of an ABA intervention program and Ryan, because of the severity of his deficits at that time, had been recommended for 40 hours per week of ABA, which, by the way, made me cry as his mother. I'm like, 40 hours a week? That's a full-time job. He's two. He can't do anything for 40 hours per week. But I quickly learned that um, he could, and, and his time outside of ABA was not productive. In fact, it was destructive. And so we may as well be in ABA because that was productive time. So anyway, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. I, so, so we had these ABA professionals in our home. Everything they said resonated with me. It made sense. And then we got to the part about the cost. And the way an ABA program is delivered, there's a, a highly trained um, board certified consultant at the top of the program who assesses the child and designs an individualized program. But then there are technicians who come into the home maybe in three-hour shifts to implement that program. So it's a multi-tiered program. And, and by the time you, you pay the consultant level person and all the technicians, 40-hour per week program was going to run about $70,000 a year. Wow. And I literally remember turning to my husband. We were sitting in the family room with the professionals. And I turned to him and I said, oh, my gosh, thank goodness we have health insurance. At the, I didn't know that at that time, health insurance would not cover one penny of it. Wow. Nothing. And I just want to remind our audience, this was over 20 years ago, right? That's right. So that, <laughs> so, that would have been 2003 is when we were having those conversations. Right. So $70,000 now is a lot of money. Back then, even more. I mean, it, it was astonishing to me. And, and I guess I had, as I studied ABA, I learned about it, I talked to the professionals, that was giving me hope. 
that we are going to get through this with Ryan. We're going to give him the opportunity to learn and to address some of his behaviors that are problematic. And then I was like, well, how are we supposed to come up with $70,000 a year? So it really, you, you, you're kind of riding up the roller coaster because there's hope. And then shoo, you, you just fall off because who can afford that? Yeah. So we, we are very fortunate that my husband and I are both lawyers and we both work full time. And so what we finally decided, it's very difficult, you know, we should one of us quit our job so we can stay home and care for him. But then if one of us quit our job, we definitely couldn't have afforded it. And what we decided to do was to live on my husband's salary and use my entire salary to pay for therapy. And that's what we did. Wow. And so you were able to get, Ryan, this important therapy. I, I, I read uh, in one piece about you that you were part of a number of support groups and began to help him a lot, but you didn't even want to talk to people about it because you knew that they probably couldn't afford it. Absolutely. We, so we paid for the therapy out of pocket for, for a few years. And during that time, we sold our house and moved to a less expensive house in South Carolina. So we left the D.C. area, moved back to South Carolina, which is where I'm from. In part, we just needed to be around some family for support because like in those days, we couldn't even go to the grocery store. Like you couldn't take him to a restaurant or a grocery store or church. We just needed some family support. So we moved to South Carolina and both continued working. And I would go to these support groups and I could see how much ABA was changing Ryan's life. And I did not even want to say that to the other moms in the group. I did want to say it because I wanted them to know, oh my gosh, look, this can change your child's entire trajectory. But I didn't want to say it because they didn't have $70,000 to come up with. They didn't have a house they could sell. But even if they're willing to make a sacrifice, they, they, they didn't have the money or the possessions to sacrifice. And it was just a knife in my stomach thinking it would be horrible to know that there's this treatment out there that's so effective and yet you can't get it for your child because you're not wealthy. Yeah, unbelievable. And, and, and this is a huge problem. I was, I was, again, just doing some research to prepare for the show and I read that the CDC reported that approximately one in 44 children in the U.S. is now diagnosed with some sort of autism spectrum disorder, according to 2018 data. And I realize that it may not have been tracked as well back then, but it's just such a broad problem. It absolutely is. And since the time you were doing your homework, new data from the CDC just came out and the new number is one in 36. Unbelievable. Just it's, unbelievable. It's terrifying. And I, and I know some of that is due to better awareness and better diagnostic capabilities and that sort of thing. But whatever the case, it's just terrifying. And I, I meet young people these days who are afraid to have children. And I think this is such a sad state of affairs. And I say, please don't be afraid to have children. My, I, I love my son with autism with all my heart and I wouldn't trade him for the world. But I, I just hate to see that state of affairs where that even crosses the mind of young couples yeah. before they plan their families. Yeah. Uh, Dave, similar experience for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, those, those numbers are terrifying. And what, uh, what I'd like to ask Lori is if she has a theory as to why, why that is, why there has, because there has been a spike and part of it is due to historical underdiagnosis. We, we at the time, were thinking about having a second child. And believe it or not, even in the early 2000s, no one could give us a straight answer as to whether we had an in increased um, chance of our second child having autism. And we had this OBGYN that was just kind of a nice guy. And he said, you know what, you need to stop worrying about it and just get pregnant. And so we did, and then waited with bated breath and watched our younger son's every move to see if he was on the spectrum. Happily, he was a typical kid, but Later, there is data that can come out that 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 there is an increased chance if you have if you have one one sibling, and so it's very sad that the it's it is one of the great mysteries, and I I'm fairly sure Lori will agree with me that some of the early theories as to why there's a spike in autism were 
complete baloney. The vaccinations, they're something in the in their diet or something like that. A lot of these have these theories have come and gone. Nothing's been proven. And I don't want to get too down, deep down the rabbit hole here, but the, I like to consider the possibility that it might be some shred of evolution that in the future our brains will change, that there might be a reason why the human brains are changing. Now, right now, as Laurie said, it's, it's very sad, say, the circumstances because these kids need a lot of help right now. But their brains work in very interesting ways. And that's one of, the, one, one of the sort of silver linings to the spike in autism is this concept of neurodiversity and that the, these kids can actually think different ways than we. Adrian, if he's been anywhere in a car, he can tell you down to every last right or left turn as to how to get back to that particular destination. So, And it's amazing what's going on in his head, but it's impossible for us to unlock all of that and have him be a, a normal person. So sorry, that was a, that was a big data dump there. But Lori, have you given thought to what the what the reason might be for the spike in autism? Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, of course, I think about it. I I, I don't really have any well-developed theories and I, and I spend most of my time and effort just thinking to the future and what can we do for the kids who are here now. But I, I share your your notion that there are a lot of theories that I'm glad have now been debunked. I mean, way back when they they would tell the parents it was because you have a refrigerator mother, a mother who is too cold natured and she hasn't been loving enough to you. And that's why this child has developed this way. And I just think that is so horrifying. Like here you are grieving this diagnosis and then they tell you it's your fault because you didn't love him or her enough. So. So, yes, thankfully, we're beyond that. We, yeah, we, we were, we felt guilty as well during those days. We, we looked back and thought we let him watch Sesame Street too much. We, we thought Elmo gave Adrian autism, which is, of course, ludicrous. But it's just, it's because of, as you said, it's that the cruel way that, that things unfold, that, that you, you see the kids' peers developing and pointing at things and starting to talk, and your child appears to, drift away, which is why the something like vaccines was a natural scapegoat, because it happens at a certain point in their early development. And it's like, well, it must be that. Well, it's not that. We've kind of proved that it's not yeah. that. Yeah. I think they know. I, I spent, I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, Michael, but I spent a, a decade working at Autism Speaks. And of course, I was in government affairs, but there was a very strong science department there. And the scientists would say, of course, they don't know yeah, what causes it? And but there, there is got to be some genetic component because they've done enough studies on twins, and they've done studies on identical twins and non-identical twins, and the the rate of autism varies. But but if it were purely genetic, then every time there were identical twins who shared all the same DNA, if one had it, the other would have it, and that's not the case. So clearly, it's not entirely genetic. But it is more often the case that both twins will have it than just siblings. So there probably there is some genetic component is is the best thinking. But you know, I'm not a scientist. I love your theory, Dave, about the the evolution. It it could well be. I I I don't talk very much about my third son, but like you, we did decide to go ahead and have that second child and third child. We knew our first was diagnosed with autism before we decided to get pregnant. So it was a little bit rolling the dice, but we decided we want to roll those dice. And I'm glad we did. Our second son is typically developing. Our third son has also been diagnosed on the spectrum, but he is the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Ryan, our first son. And it's so fascinating to have both ends of the spectrum at the dinner table together every night. <laughs> you've got, and you've got a, you've got a, pardon the expression, but a control subject in the middle. So you've got, yeah, that's you've, right. got an, you've got an autism lab there. <laughs> yes, we do. Well, the control subject has gone off to college at okay. Northwestern this year. So, yeah. so for the first time, it's just the, the first and the third child. But, but my third child, extremely verbal and vocal, extremely smart. I mean, like you said about Adrian, I mean, I cannot, I can hardly converse with him. He's so smart. His his brain just works in ways that mine doesn't. And I am grateful for that. I celebrate him. I cannot keep up with him, 
but I celebrate it and I can't wait to see where it will take him in life and and what what he might do for society with all those smarts. So I, I love your theory. I love and, and 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 I love your energy, Lori, and your 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 passion around this. And speaking of which, this is the perfect opportunity to now have you speak about your journey and what you did, not only for your family, but for everybody else, ultimately in your state and in this country. So tell us about what you did about it. Well, so this was back, as I said, we had moved to South Carolina when Ryan was a toddler to get that additional family support. We were still paying privately for his ABA and it was tough, but we could do it. But as I said, I was around all these other families who either didn't get any ABA or they would get an hour a week from the school, which is like taking a fraction of an aspirin. It's it's kind of pointless, right? And so my heart broke for them to the point that I, I finally, I, I think I had a moment where I was like, this is so unfair. Somebody should do something about this. And I had a moment of, oh, wait a minute. I am somebody and I have a law degree. Maybe this is why I went to law school to begin with. I'm a pretty good writer. I understand the problem very intensely. So I think I will try to do something about it. And I literally sat down at my kitchen table and this was 2005 now and wrote out a little three paragraph bill that just said what I thought the law should be. And I've never written a bill before. I had no um, experience whatsoever with, with drafting legislation, but I knew very clearly what I thought the law should be. And I thought the law should be that if a person has purchased health insurance then they should, and their child's diagnosed with autism, they should get coverage for the evidence-based treatments that are recommended by a physician. And that was pretty much it. It was just a very simple, common sense bill to rectify this problem and, and bring relief to a lot of families. It wasn't simple from that point forward, because what I thought was just a good common sense bill, apparently some others thought was not such a good idea. But I contacted a legislator in South Carolina and went to him and just educated him on what the problem was. He had no connection to autism whatsoever, but I, I, I explained the problem. I explained how I thought we could fix it. And I said, I've taken the liberty of, of drafting the bill. Here it is. Would you file this for me? And he was extremely receptive and he said, I will file it and I will, I will help you fight for it. But there were lobbyists that were against you. Oh, yes. Were there ever. The the insurance industry did not think my bill was such a good idea. Yeah. And frankly, some of the business community also opposed it. Honestly, it wasn't so much any individual business as the, their their organizations, their trade associations that that opposed it. And they said, look, we oppose anything that will cause the cost of health insurance to go up. And we oppose the government telling us what we have to do. These are private contracts between an insurance company and, and a person or an em employer. These are private contracts. And I live in a conservative state, South Carolina, and we don't believe in big government. And we don't believe the government should come in and tell anybody what to put in their contract. So it was a very, I'm not going to say it was a hostile environment. There, there was some philosophical hostility to the idea. But honestly, I just made appointments and, and with a lot of other families that I recruited to help me from all around the state, just started making appointments with, indiv with individual legislators and sitting down with them and say, here's a picture of my child. Let me tell you, he's struggling. This could really help him, but we don't have $70,000. We don't have $50,000. We do pay for health insurance. We pay our premiums every month, which is what we want families to do in this country but we don't have anything left over. So I really found legislators individually to be really quite sympathetic. Um, and you got a lot of support, but do I understand correctly that the governor vetoed the, that you got it all passed and the governor exercised his veto authority? Yes, you do understand that correctly. It, it took two years of lobbying, and I'm going to use a small L lobbying because 
I didn't have any money to hire a lobbyist. I did not, at this point, I didn't work for Autism Speaks or any other autism organization. I was just a mom. And so there was no organization to hire a lobbyist. We were just a bunch of parents who kept showing up at the state house and, and having meetings with our legislators. So after two years of doing that, and I mean hundreds and hundreds of meetings and trips and committee hearings and educating legislators and being positive about the whole, we're, we're trying to help here. It finally passed. I, it was in May of 2007, it passed. And in South Carolina, the governor has 10 days to either sign or veto a bill, or he can let it sit on his desk and take no action, in which case it will become law. And honestly, I didn't really expect him to sign it because he would be philosophically opposed to this government interference. But I didn't expect him to veto it either. I thought he'd just let it sit there and let it become law. But literally the penultimate night of the session, late at night, he vetoed the bill. And, and a legislator called me at home. I lived in Charleston, so this is two hours from the state capitol. Every time I had to go to the state house, it was schlepping two hours there, arranging childcare, all this stuff. So I got word about 10 or 10.30 that night that he had vetoed it. And there was only one day left in the legislative session. And so I got on the phone and started calling my autism friends that I had made around the state. And I said, sorry for waking you up, but he just vetoed the bill. And we have spent two years. And could you come to Columbia tomorrow? Just come to the state house. And people were like, what am I going to do with my child? I can't get a babysitter at this time of night. And with autism, you can't just call the neighbor kid down the street. You got to have somebody who's trained to be with your child. I'm like, don't worry about it. Just bring him, just show up, whatever. So by the next morning, we had about 75 people there lining the escalator that went up to the state capitol. And we just grabbed everybody we could find and said, you will not believe this. He vetoed the bill. So it was a long, tense day of having no idea if all of our efforts had just gone down the tubes. It's really hard to get on the agenda the last day of a legislative session. There's so many things they're trying to wrap up. The House and the Senate are battling and they're horse trading. And just even getting on the agenda and being able to speak to anybody was extremely difficult. But by the end of the day, both the House and the Senate unanimously overrode the governor's veto. Wow. wow. What a story. And, and was it known as Ryan's Law immediately? And people had started calling it that already. Okay. And I, I don't know. I felt a little funny about it, but it, at that point, it didn't matter what I thought. Everybody was going to call it that, and it's still, it stuck. What an amazing accomplishment, Lori. Just amazing. And, and of course, you weren't done because then people from around the country started getting involved. They heard about Ryan's Law, and they knew what was going on in South Carolina. So then what? Well, I thought I was done, by the way. <laughs> At the day it passed, I was also extremely pregnant with my third child. So anyway, I, I really had not thought further than South Carolina. I just wanted to get this done for, for the family from the friends I had met. But yes, people started emailing me and calling me from all over the country and saying, I heard that there's a law in South Carolina that requires health insurance to pay for ABA. Is that true? Does it really work? If so, can you tell me how to do it? Or can you come to Kansas and help? Or will you come out to Washington State and help us do it? And really just a lot of families got energized when they heard, oh my gosh, this is a possibility. And I got a little bit overwhelmed with all the phone calls and the emails. And finally, I said, look, if you guys will all just come to Charleston one weekend, I'll rent a little conference room. I didn't rent it. I borrowed it a little conference room in Charleston. I said, we will sit down together and spend an entire Saturday and I'll share everything I've learned and share all the materials, help you in any way. I'd love to strategize with you. And so a dozen people flew themselves to Charleston, every single one of which I had never met. They just, on the basis of the email exchanges and what they saw, 
had happened in South Carolina. So a dozen people came. We had this fabulous day of strategizing about how can we make this spread. And that was the beginning of an event that still happens to this day called the Autism Law Summit. So that first Autism Law Summit was 12 people. We did another one later that same year that drew, I think, 35 people from around the country. And people were like, will you help me draft the bill? I'll go recruit the parents. I'll go talk to legislators. I said, yes, I'll absolutely help you. That's, I'd love to. And, and this is all still before I worked for Autism Speaks. That event has grown. We do it every fall, and we have three or 400 people come each year. Still, it's not all about insurance anymore, but still talking about and strategizing with each other about how we can use the law to make life better for people with autism. It's very energizing and encouraging, and it's just, it's just this positive gathering that I look forward to every year. Fantastic. And through your, your so you ultimately joined Autism Speaks, and I mean, Lori, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you won't take, um, you know, too much credit for it, but it looks like you, you ultimately were at the center of, of getting every state in the union by the year 2019, I understand, to come on board. Well, I'm, I'm going to give credit to Bob and Suzanne Wright, who founded Autism Speaks, who were kind enough to reach out to me after Ryan's law passed in South Carolina and say, this is great. This is a great piece of law. This should be policy everywhere. Will you come work for us? And that'll be your job is to travel around the country and try to pass this law in, in other states. And I, I just look back and I'm so grateful at their vision and their forethought to invest, you know, to, to allow me to be able to make that my job, right? I mean, I, I've, I've already shared, I'm not independently wealthy as much as I maybe would have liked to have traveled around the country and done that. I, I couldn't do that. I, I need to work. And so I'm grateful to the rights and to Autism Speaks for, for making it a job that I could occupy and work. And yeah, it was a phenomenal decade, literally going to every state and meeting families there, finding legislators that we thought would carry the bill and fight for the autism community, working with providers who wanted to be a part of the effort writing the bill. I mean, most of the families, I, there would be like a, a key family or two in every state, but typically they weren't lawyers. So usually I would write the legislation and tweak it for whatever they needed to suit their state. But it was really empowering to see so many families step up and lead the charges in their states. And, 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 and now you've, you've, you've done this amazing thing and you have extraordinary to use our, our term, changed the law or been a part of changing the law in all 50 states. And yet there was more to be done. You had, you had some feelings about how difficult it still was to, to offer ABA and uh, you ultimately, you and your husband, Dan, founded the Unum Center for Neurodevelopment, which I know wasn't originally called that, but they named it after you, rightly so. Tell us a little about that. Sure. So really, this was fairly early after Ryan's law passed. That was 2007 that it passed, really went into effect in 2008. So I'm tickled that there's widespread availability of, of funding, of coverage for ABA throughout the state. And yet there weren't enough providers to serve all those children who could now access ABA. And in particular, there were no centers where we lived. Everybody was still coming into the home. And I looked at that and I thought, that's really inefficient on so many levels. It's it's weird for my son, who's now 10 or whatever he was, not quite that old, to be home every day with one therapist. He should be in a, more like a school setting. And he did go to public school for a while, but we ultimately pulled him into ABA full time. And so I just, I looked around the country and there were up in Massachusetts or in New Jersey or New York, there were some 
centers of excellence. And I thought we really need that so that the, the professionals can draw energy from each other and they can learn from each other's cases. They can consult with each other. The children can be together. And there was nothing like that. We actually flew to New Jersey to visit one center that I really liked and met with the directors. And my husband and I were like, well, our jobs are flexible. Maybe we'll just move to New Jersey so that Ryan can enroll in this center. But I didn't want to move to New Jersey. I, we, I was born and raised in South Carolina, and I wanted to be able to stay in South Carolina. So rather than moving our family, we decided to take what we had seen some of the best places around the country and try to replicate that in South Carolina. So in 2010, we founded a nonprofit called the Autism Academy of South Carolina. And we didn't know what we were doing, but we figured it out as we went along, hired some professionals who did know what they were doing. And I'm really proud of that because then not only Ryan could get a good center-based approach, but other kids in our area could too. And, and it's still uh, ongoing. It's uh, <laughs> still still operational and serving lots of kids. And the it mission- sounds like all of your efforts are ongoing. I do want to just, we're going to move into our extraordinary teaching segment. <laughs> but before we do that, I want to just ask you just to tell us briefly about your, your current venture, which is you serve as the CEO of the Council of Autism Service Providers. Yes. So in 2019, which is the year that the 50th state came on board with autism insurance reform, a trade association called the Council of Autism Service Providers reached out to me and they had lost their inaugural executive director and said, we're interested in having you come in to lead our organization. And initially I said, no, I'm not a provider. I, I really like working on behalf of the families. I like what I'm doing with Autism Speaks. But then I decided, actually, I would like to do that because these providers are the ones working with the families directly every day. And I thought, I've played a role in creating all of this funding. I want to make sure that the providers continue to be in it for the right reason and that we don't just have a bunch of new entrants into the market who see dollar signs from health insurance. So it just it was a slight shift in, in the, the, the advocacy focus. But I've really, really enjoyed working with and representing the providers who are on the floor with the kids doing the hard work day after day after day. I admire them so much. And like I said, I'm not one that's not my training, but I admire them and appreciate them. And it's an honor to represent them. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a career. Not what you were expecting, but boy, you made a difference. Lori, we're now going to move into our extraordinary teaching segment. Seeking the Extraordinary presents Extraordinary Teachings, a deeper look at the qualities that allow people to do extraordinary things. All right, Lori, we're going to do some uh, quick Q&A now. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment in life so far? Well, you would think the obvious answer would be passing Ryan's Law. but I would. I, well, but you know, what I'm going to say has been really satisfying is inspiring the other families to believe that they could go and do the same thing, that that has been really satisfying and seeing them all stay together to this day. Yeah, I think you've inspired people beyond people who are directly connected with, with autism. Just saying. Any regrets? I always wanted to be a rocket. <laughs> no, maybe I regret, but I don't. That, I don't think that was uh, what was meant for my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think they, the universe had something else planned for you. <laughs> what single tip might you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? All right. Well, this one will probably surprise you, but I would say lower your standards. I like to maintain low standards for myself <laughs> mm -hmm. because I'm a mother of three boys. I'm a wife. I'm a full-time professional. I can't be perfect at everything. And, and so I just set the expectations. Some days my kids are going to show up for school in dirty clothes that don't match. Occasionally, I'm going to forget to pick them up from band practice on time. I'm going to fail. But I just set the standards a little bit lower. And, and then I feel happy with myself. I think that's actually highly logical. Is that So the next question that I like to ask my guests is, 
is for you to offer the best advice you've ever given or received. Is it the same answer? Well, I do. I do share that tip because it has been important for me and not driving myself crazy. I will also share a very practical one that my mother, who was a working professional in the 1970s, gave me. She had five children and was a corporate executive who traveled. And I remember her speaking to a group of women and speaking to me and saying, here's my advice. Hire someone to help with the housework. Hire yourself a housekeeper because you can't do everything. And really, do you want to spend your time cleaning the house or playing games with your kids when you're home? Mm -hmm. oh, I, super practical, but that's, that's been great advice. And what have been your, your best learning opportunities or mistakes? Everybody talks about, and we've talked about on this show today, that, that, that I played a role in and led the, the effort to pass 50 state laws on autism insurance reform. I also keep a map of the United States showing all the times I've failed because many of them didn't pass the first time around. They failed the first time around. And so learning resilience. Mm -hmm. has sure. Been. Makes sense. All right. Two more questions. Again, this may be an obvious question, just just given the, the, the nature of this interview, but I want to ask you anyway, just see how you answer. Do you have a personal mission? I guess I'd like to leave the world a better place than, than when I found it from, from an autism perspective. That sounds cliche, but I, I'm very inspired by the be the change you want to see in the world mm -hmm. quote. So yeah, I think that's it. I want to be the change. And then the last question, which you may have already answered is, what do you hope your legacy will be? What do you know? We actually haven't touched on my, my newest project is building a campus for adults with autism, which is something I'm working on in my hometown right now. And in some ways, I feel like it's the most ambitious thing I've ever tried to do. And I, I never set out to, I mean, I'm not a developer. I don't know anything about building a community, but I know the kind of environment that I want to leave for my son. And it, it, I think it's my last big hurrah, and, it, and I'm really, really excited about it. Well, of course, only you know what your last big hurrah will be. But just having this conversation with you, can I respectfully say that I doubt it? <laughs> you, you can posit that. We'll see. <laughs> thank well, you. Just, just thank you so much for this wonderful uh, interview, but also just thank you for what you've done for the world. And that, my friends, is the extraordinary Lori Unum. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Michael. I've enjoyed our conversation. And David, thank you for, for sharing your journey as well. I enjoyed it as well. Fantastic job, Lori. Thank you. I think I'm going to end this show with a quote from Lori, and here it is. Just because something is the law doesn't mean it always has to be that way. You can change the system even though it might not be easy. You have a lot of power as a citizen, and with an idea and a positive approach to making a change, you can affect a lot of people's lives. You can learn more about Lori and her extraordinary quest at unumcenter.org and on LinkedIn. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit colonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.